This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with assistant lead foundation phase coach at Cat One Academy, Ollie Higginson. He discusses his reflections on study visits of clubs around Europe, how he engages players in their individual development plans, as well as his own personal development going into a new role. This podcast was also recorded over the internet, so it may sound a little different to normal. I hope you enjoy. Oh, how are things in in COVID land? Yeah, all good, all good. We're uh, we're coping. Yeah, I guess um, for you, obviously, the challenge has been trying to work with the kids remotely um, and trying to engage in that. How have you found that process a little bit different to normal? To be fair, I think what this has shown us is that there's lots of different ways to sort of connect, um, but just being mindful of, of the the circumstances circumstances around each individual is probably key so obviously not everyone's got a massive garden not everyone's even got a garden um so just being mindful of the stuff that we set them actually i think is the is the main thing that we need to do once we've got that information and once we're actually comfortable in in what we you know know about the player i think it's helped us to actually put support out there that's actually actually relevant to that player and how's the buy-in from the lads been with that once you've individualised it? Yeah, it's been really good. So sort of with the with the foundation phase, we've um, sort of give them lots and lots of different things to choose from and then they can pick it up and put it down whenever they want to. Um, they really like the competition, they really like challenge. So we had like nines versus tens, tens versus elevens. And within the foundation phase, they loved it. I don't think the take-up for the YDP was as sort of big, if you like. I don't think they were that engaged with that sort of competition element. But in the foundation phase, they really liked it. And the nines enjoyed beating the tens and the elevens at keepy-ups. You know, so so they they were they were buzzing off that. Have you got any examples of things that you've been doing with them? Yeah, so the, the keepy-up challenge was what they had to do within their teams is get as many keepy-ups as they could. Each keepy-up counted for a mile, and it got them around the world. So by the end, like, the nines had got all the way, like, to wherever it was, Australia, or nearly all, all the way around the world. And they'd overtaken, like, the, the 10s and the 11s, and we had players that were doing 3,000 keepy-ups. Mm. We had, we had under-9s, so 8-year-old, 9-year-old boys doing around, like, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 keepy-ups, which is more than actually I've seen in, in my whole time coaching. You know, the previous sort of record for an individual was 2,000 that I'd seen. But that sort of competition and the amount of time that they had to do it, they really, really bought in. And then we've seen some amazing sort of games. And at the end of the day, doing keepy-ups isn't going to make you a professional footballer. But what it is going to do is show us that you have that ability to sort of drive your own practice and that sort of, if you like, a strong state of mind or that, that grit and determination to actually push yourself in order to achieve something, even if it is quite minor, something like doing a thousand keepy-ups. 
in the grand scheme of things weird that that sort of comes into play in some different areas of, the, of their development as well. And then how have you found like challenging the lads? Because obviously normally when you're challenging them, you're able to give them a little bit of support, whereas now you're doing it and kind of getting them to be the driver behind it. How how's that been for you? Well, as, as you know, like in terms of my sort of coaching style, I, I tend to be quite sort of, if you like, quite supportive but very challenging as well within my environment. So it's difficult to get that same level of challenge. The only way that we've sort of done it is that we just have regular check-ins and just check-ins with the parents. So sometimes not even going straight to the player, just dropping a text to the parent and saying, how is everything? You know, does this player need a little bit more support? If so, you know, I'm willing to give it him. Um, can I speak to him on the phone or whatever? And then that then, so some parents will say, oh, we're, we're completely fine. And they're getting on with their hype page and they're, they're working on some different areas for development on there. But some players, some parents are saying, actually, this, this player needs a little bit more support. So from that, we then get on the phone, get on a Skype call, teams whatever you want to do and just have a conversation around you know what they're doing and normally it's just because they're playing Fortnite and they're enjoying just doing nothing you know but um all they need is a little prompting and a reminder sometimes that some of their their teammates are maybe trying to kick on a little bit and maybe they're still at the same level but it's about how you frame it you know i think they should be scared from a conversation with you they should be motivated they should actually want to take that challenge on because they understand the importance of it i guess now as well as it's kind of as big a time as any is you want to support them with their football stuff but you also appreciate these are odd times and probably some stressing with family or parents or just with the situation in general so it's balancing that time to allow them to play Fortnite to then also it's probably a good idea to get outside and be active. And if you're going to do that, football seems as good a choice as any. Definitely, definitely. The boys need to go and play on FIFA and Fortnite and switch off or just go and mess about for a bit and put the ball down, put the ball away, if you like. But obviously there needs to be times where you're right in, in terms of we need to strike a balance between making sure that they practice and they're ready to hit the ground running when we actually do return so it's, it's just I think as long as they're enjoying it then you're probably at that balance <clears throat> when they stop enjoying it you're probably over the balance that makes sense yeah for sure and then <clears throat> is there any lessons you've learned that you'll take with you kind of back to when everything returns to normal which it seems like we're moving in that right direction is there anything that you'll take with you to go actually we could implement this or this is something I think we'll, we'll reflect really positively on yeah well I think if we look at say player reviews for example we sort of do a one size fits all but often don't actually bring the best out in terms of the engagement with the player it maybe might put a little bit more of a strain on the parents so if we actually offer player reviews virtually it may sort of help in regards to those two areas um i feel that also just like the use of sort of footage and analysis and sort of team challenges on 
throughout the season, like using our higher platform or say huddle when we eventually get to grips with using that. Um, I think that would be a real benefit and it's something that we probably don't do well, we didn't do as well previous to lockdown. I think that, yeah, it will be interesting to see how things change the other side of this because I think what it's highlighted for most people is virtually we could do a lot more than we have been rather than people travelling two hours for a meeting and then two hours up again. There's nothing wrong with that. I I think as well, just as a a staff as well, I think it allows these sort of platforms allow for much clearer communication and more constant communication. Sometimes you want to get away from just shut off from communication, you know. But like in the season, there's a lot of things that need to be said, even just your, your weekly MDT meetings, and actually utilizing these sort of platforms to get everyone in the room. I feel is vital. So that's something that we'll definitely look to do next next season. Perfect. So obviously we've kind of skipped over what your role is. If you just want to go to go through kind of what your role is at the club and how you've ended up there, I guess. Okay. Um, so I'm the assistant lead phase at Southampton Club. Um, so that really just means that I look after nines to elevens with the under nines being my main age group. Um, I'm sort of responsible for the over, like overseeing the individual like development plans of the, the individual players throughout the phase. Obviously, that's a lot of players, so it's not just me doing it, but I'll just sort of lead on that and, and try and help the coaches to find the best ways of actually supporting their players. Um, and that's something that I really want to try and develop a little bit this season. And then you started off volunteering and then working in development centres, right? Um, and then ended up getting a little bit more in terms of we opened up development centres. I've done a little bit more there. I started to lead the age, one of the age groups in the foundation phase at Perth was working across a lot of different uh, age groups there. And then eventually the opportunity came up to uh, go down to Staplewood and work at our sort of main campus at Staplewood and been there for about four years now doing the same sort of role. It's obviously developed a little bit over time, but the sort of job role is still the same. And obviously, I I know you kind of been been mates and muckers and colleagues and stuff for the last again probably nine or so years. How important do you think that grounding of, I guess, the volunteering to a degree, but also the coaching stuff you used to do in schools or holiday camps? Yeah, so I actually I skimmed over that, didn't I? So uh, I I forgot about that. Um, not that I forgot about it because I feel feel it's the probably the making of me as a coach being able to go into schools and not know what you're going to deal with at that certain time. So you might end up with a class of 30, you might end up with a class of 15, it might be a class with some sort of learning difficulties, there might there may be uh, members of the, the class that really struggle with PE or whatever, and at the end of the day, the difference was most of them didn't even want to be in your session, you know, so you had to find ways of making them engage with the session, but also just being able to be really adaptable within that school setting was was key for me. You know, I've got loads of stories where it all went completely wrong and you're really out of your comfort zone, but then you'd go to a Southampton session and everyone wants to be there and actually you're working with some very skillful players, 
and everything seems a lot easier when you go from that school session to the to the Southampton session. Obviously, the the detail in your sort of tactical and technical is is a lot higher, but in terms of managing the group, it's it's an absolute doddle compared to what a school could be. So for me, it was a perfect grounding in sort of behaviour management and sort of just getting people to buy in and engage with your session in different ways. And would you recommend that to coaches looking to work in academy setups or do you think that they could get that grounding in other ways? I think it's a vital step. And I feel if you if you skip that step, you're probably missing out on a little bit. So like I was when I look back I was really quite young and naive and didn't really understand it come straight out of a sort of football setup where I was playing to then thought right, just gonna set up my own business, it's gonna be easy, I'm gonna go into these schools and I'm gonna, you know, start delivering PE and football. Um, and then you knock on this you knock on the schools and and you get knocked back, and you get knocked back, and you get knocked back, and it's like playing football again. I'm like, Jesus, I'm going through the ring again, getting, get, getting bombed out. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and then you go in. Eventually, you get into these schools, and you realise you ain't got a clue what to do in terms of actually dealing with these kids, in terms of dealing with the the actual teachers and setting up, you know, payment schemes and stuff like that. So I was just learning constantly, like day in, day out. And then I sort of, the the, um, the schoolwork sort of took a little bit more of a backseat because the Southampton stuff started to develop a lot quicker than the schoolwork did. And I sort of left my business sort of there, if you like, and went to help one of my friends in their, in their business, in active development, which, you know, was providing a bigger sort of, um, support for local schools around Bath and Bristol and that really worked for me because it allowed me to be really flexible as a young coach trying to get up if you like get up the ladder so I don't I don't believe that if if I sort of had a normal job I think I would have faced a lot more barriers in terms of actually trying to progress at Southampton because the coaching whether it's my business or my friend's business allowed me to be really flexible and say actually so I need to get to Southampton this type more I've got um, this tour that we need to go on which means I'm going to be away for a few days if it was my business I would have struggled a little bit more if I had a normal job I would have struggled a little bit more but my sort of setup allowed me to be a lot more flexible and then obviously there's there's a lot of talk around kind of 10,000 hours allowing you to be an expert before more or expert in the area I guess from what you're saying there, especially earlier on, there was a a lot of hours that you're completing coaching and trying to develop those skills. How many hours do you reckon per week you're actually coaching or do you want to run through roughly what a schedule may look like? Now, I appreciate this is a decade ago, so it might not be... I'm terrible at maths as well, so you might have to correct me. But um, I I was coaching every night. So going into the second season, yeah, right halfway through the second season at, at Saints, I was coaching every night. So we had development centres and I'd work at Bristol, DC. I'd work at the, um, at the Academy of Bath three times in a week, Bristol, DC and Western DC. So 
in five five sort of weekdays, I'd be full in terms of the Southampton um, sessions. And then on a weekend, I'd be working a Saturday morning, doing our advanced group of sixes all the way up to, um, well, the sixes to eights now. But actually, when, when we first started, it was eights to elevens, I think, or eights to tens. So I'd do a Saturday morning and then a game on a Sunday as well. So I was doing seven days a week in terms of Southampton. And then in schools, I'd be working from normally every day, I'd say, or every other day. But then some days I'd have four days in school. Some days I'd have two hours in school. So it, it's quite hard for me to go over that like in terms of breaking it down into hours. But in terms of sessions, I think... I was doing at least 12, 12 sessions a week, 13 sessions a week, maybe, maybe more, you know, depending on what was going on in the schools. And do you feel like that accelerated your learning with all that group management stuff and planning and practice design and all that type of stuff? Definitely. I feel, I feel that, this, especially the start of my journey, it was just like constant in terms of that development and just learning off different people. I was lucky enough to to work with some real, real good practitioners that really sort of moulded my approach. Like who? So, so first of all, like my my football manager was actually a really good coach. So Matt was a very very skilled coach and someone that we took a lot of. And I think I speak just not for me, but for like the rest of our group, we took a lot of sort of principles and standards from Matt Hale, so, right? Yeah, Matt Hale. So yeah. He had a bit of a military background and, you know, we we do some things that would really push us and, and probably nowadays you probably, they might frown upon it, like doing dog runs through the through the um, woods and stuff. But we were building this resilience and this grit and this determination into our group of footballers. But Matt also took over at Southampton, so he sort of, he took over at the Bath Academy, so he sort of stamped that same sort of standards and that, that determination to be the best within the coaching group. Um, so another another coach that I learned from and picked up a lot from, and I think if you would speak to him, you know, he'd say he'd done a lot of things wrong with me. So it's sort of like scored hard knocks, and Brad Brad Andrews sort of give me that. So uh, yeah, I'll be doing a session, he just go no stop, and completely sort of like just batter me in terms of like my confidence. But then I actually, I feel now I'm able to take setbacks a lot better and negative feedback, I actually prefer negative feedback than positive feedback. It makes me feel a bit uncomfortable when I'm getting some good feedback. Um, and then just actually working like day in, day out in, in schools, I picked up loads from Nate Loader, who was really, I felt good with actual the actual delivery in schools and, and the behaviour management and getting on the kids' level. Being able to engage with these these uh, these kids that don't really want to be there, and then you know we both sort of because we worked at Western DC and we worked within the academy together, we both sort of just tried things, and it was a real safe environment to try things with Nate. So we go actually think about doing this today. Some things would be an absolute car crash, and we might have Jesus that didn't work, you know. But other things would work really really well. And we just bounce ideas off each other. And there's sessions that me and Nate sort of came up with just on the fly at times. We'd always have a plan. but And I'd say that's that's a really, really important part of 
any coach in terms of their development, they must be willing to plan. That like I was getting up in the morning and thinking about things, that like, or getting up at night and I'll be like, right, that session. Because at that point in time, what it was, just coaching, 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 and a lot less of the admin stuff that I do now. But yeah, so there's still sessions that like we'd think of and just make slight adaptions to. I, I use day in and day out now. And how important do you think it is for a coach to be able to be comfortable at a session maybe going wrong because you're trying something or you're trying it in a different way or it's new to you? Well, I would say if it's not gone wrong, then you probably aren't sort of exploring enough yourself because my sessions, I'll say to the boys regularly, I say, boys, that didn't work. That's, that's my fault. Just like you've just tried your skill, be the man move, and it's not worked, or you've just tried that pass, you've just tried switching across the pitch and someone's intercepted it. The intention's right, but maybe the delivery wasn't right, you know, and that happens to us as coaches. So I think you have to try and experiment in your delivery. But I'm quite a big believer in, in trying to keep things realistic to the game. So I don't, I don't particularly like you know, for example, three balls being on the pitch because it's not the game. Whereas, you know, other people will argue that that is, it will improve their awareness, it will improve their sort of uh, perception of space and stuff like that. Um, however, I would say that for me personally, you've got to try and push yourself. You've got to try and think, be innovative with your session design. But when you find a good session, don't be scared to do it and do it again and do it again and actually nail that session. So this, it's, if you like, it just becomes in your armory, you know, and you can use that when, whenever you need to. Because the better you know a session, the less the players have to sort of adapt to know the session as well. And then once they've done it a few times or they've done it once, they don't have to think about actually how the session works. They actually think about or they, they work on what's actually going on in the session. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. For me, I, I, I find that a little bit of a, it's a bit of a bugbear where, like, I'm, I'm watching a session maybe and I'm thinking, the boys have just spent an hour or 40 minutes or 20 minutes just learning your session. Now you've moved on to another session. And I'm thinking, well, hang on, what am I going to do with it? I don't, I don't know what's going on. So, for me, it's about being, it's trying to, simplify those sessions so that the boys actually work on the outcomes of the session rather than learning the session. And I think what's interesting there is that you've mentioned the first couple of times you do it, it might not look right, it might not look yeah. how you've drawn, well for me how you've drawn it, how I've drawn it out and go oh that will then need to that, it doesn't generally look like that. However, when you're open enough and you can reflect to say it didn't work because of this, but actually if I adapt that, it might work, and you roll with it, you might end up with a really good session, but it will be three or four deliveries down the road. Yeah, it's just like it's just like an iPhone, isn't it? Like it's always improving. Like you look at the first iPhone, and if someone give you that today, you'd be like, Jesus Christ, ain't using that? It's rubbish. And then you get the new one. And you're thinking, that yeah, works perfect. But it's only because it's taken, what, 10, like 11, 11 yeah. evolutions to get there. So, yeah, if you can keep adapting and just tweaking that 
that session. So like there's a 1v1 game that I use regularly and, and I know Nate uses it and you use it and loads of other people use it and I think it's even gone to China. And like this year, I just, uh, just a real slight adaption to it, just adding in a mannequin to work off some movement before they receive a pass to then break a gate and score on a goal. Just adds another little element to it. And without thinking of it, you can just say, oh, that's okay. We'll leave it as that. But sometimes you might need to just freshen up a little bit. What if your group's got it and they just need that little bit more in terms of stimulus to to really engage within that session? Been in the role for four years now, so you would have been relatively young when you, when you moved into that. How yeah. was that for you, kind of going... Obviously, you've had your accelerated learning for three or four years, um, working every hour under the sun to then be kind of full-time assistant lead and then, I guess, managing people a little bit and dealing with different um, different problems and different you know, areas. How was that transition for you? I think that's a great question and it's, um, it's got so many different elements I could sort of talk through and, and touch on. I think, firstly, it was, it was difficult, definitely difficult to come from being self-employed, being the self-employed coach that really had, I had complete control about what I do and, you know, how much I'm coaching and and what hours I'm in to then having to take, um, if you like, I have to then have to be at work for this time and have to, I, I had to do that anyway, but it wasn't as rigid. So for me, just personally, like taking commands off people was different to me. I'd done it. I'd done it in football. I'd done it in school. You know, I'd done it when I was just like doing some part-time work, but never really, never really liked it. I liked being a bit of a free spirit. So that took a little bit of a adapt, adaption from me. So I had to adapt a little bit to that. Um, in terms of the role, I think initially in the first year, I found it quite difficult in terms of like the admin side of things because I just wanted to be a coach and then I started to just sit behind a desk and and do all these different sort of you know schedules and planning and, and just bits of work that you don't even think about and as you know we actually spend most of our time now sat behind computers planning and doing all the rest of the admin stuff you know contacting parents then we do actually out on the pitch and that was a real big sort of if you like, a tussle for me, where I was, I was thinking, I just want to be a coach, I just want to get out and coach. But now I'm starting to realise that, you know, your organisation, your, and your sort of, if you like, your forward thinking will help in your, in your delivery. So yeah, it's, I've always known that it's really important to plan, but now my sort of, my, my level of planning has got a lot better as well. Um, in terms of managing people, I've probably, I always felt that I was, I was able to, to form good relationships with people because I'm sort of, I feel I'm honest and I'm authentic in my approach. But what I am is quite emotional as well, very emotional. And I've, I've figured that out as I've gone through, you know, these last few years. But, <laughs> and I sort of go up and down, up and down. So sometimes within a management role, I've had to try and level my emotions out a lot more and sort of give my sort of best self as much as I possibly could. Because at the end of the day, within a management role, I should be sort of setting examples. So in that element of it, it can at times be tiring, 
because a person that, like me that is quite emotional finds it quite difficult at times to to regulate that, especially at the start. But I think now I'm a lot more sort of calm. I'm a lot more mature, and I'm able. I've got a better idea of, of, of myself. Oh, got a bit of a high high note. <laughs> yeah. So and and that's helped through like PP the PPA sort of profiles that we do, and they get you to understand your character a little bit more. And I've done another one called, I think it's TQI. And what they do is just raise your emotional intelligence, really. You get to a point where you're looking at this feedback, you go, wow, how, how, from answering these questions, how have you got that I'm stubborn, that I'm this, that I'm that? And you think, okay, so what am I going to do about that in terms of actually the actions to ensure that I'm still, you know, very good at my role, but not actually change my personality? So how how did you, how did you go about that? What type of things? Obviously, if you're you're saying that you used to be quite emotional or still are, but you've learned how to manage that. What type of processes were put in place to help you with that? So first of all, it's just for me, it was just actually knowing that was key. So actually having it on paper saying you're this, you're that, you're this, and some of it you'd go, that's me exactly. And some you got might go, am I really like that? But then, you know, you might delve into it. You might actually find out that, yeah, I am like that. Um, so actually knowing has definitely helped. I think I'd done an, another course called, um, it was ILM, so it was Leadership and Management. And that actually helped me to, it's like, it's like an executive coaching course, so it helped me to engage with people on sort of different levels and offer sort of coaching rather than advice or it's difficult to it's difficult to sort of put into words into how I use that but what I would do is within those sort of conversations I would sort of if you like capture what what is that I needed to be within that within that moment so do I need to be sort of personal do I need to be like Ollie or do I need to be at this point a manager? So using the ILM, I've, able, I've been able to actually sort of flip at times what, what sort of person you're going to see from me, if you like, or what sort of character you're going to see from me. That's a better under the description of it. And that's just based around sort of being active in the, in the conversation sort of really listening to those conversations, being able to summarise, so showing a good understanding that you follow in those conversations, and then not offering advice. At times, advice might be really key, so that's when I'm trying to be maybe a little bit more personal. But if you come to me with a with an issue, I'm more likely to take a bit more of a coaching sort of role towards that issue rather than a personal role. So I think separating the conversations into what I feel is probably going to get the most benefit out of it is, is, has helped. Does that, does that uh, make sense? I yeah. feel like I've rambled on a little No, 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 for sure, for sure. In terms of just trying to get almost um, be like a critical thinking partner um, in terms of your qu- probing them with questions to then think out loud to deal with the issue or thoughts or things like that. I think what has been key as well throughout is is having people that you could say that you can go to and say, "What do you think about this?" 
and knowing that they're going to give you some actual things to take away from it rather than, yeah, it's good, because I don't help. So like, I, I try and actually get people that want that will say, actually, oh, this needs to improve. This needs to improve this area, you know, think about your delivery of this part. Because without that, it's just like you've got the blinkers on and you can't really see outside of it. So luckily, like there's people within the establishment, people that I trust. I think that's really important that you have those people that you trust to get that feedback from as well. And I think that's helped quite a lot. So then, obviously carrying on what you were saying before, you you've worked on the kind of management side and all that type of stuff. Is there anything else that you found different moving down into the role that you're in now? Um, presentations. <laughs> so that for me was like a massive stumbling block. It might sound really stupid, but um, going into the job, I, I was so scared. I was so scared of like getting up and delivering in front of people. I was fine actually coaching in front of people. So I just feel like I'm in my sort of groove there. But getting up in a classroom and or like in a that auditorium and being able to present up to people used to scare the life out of me, and it still does scare me a bit now. And I've just got better at doing it by just putting myself in those positions. I remember getting doing a CPD for the the coaches around Southampton with like forty to whatever it was, fifty people in the room, and I just completely forget my words, and I just be stood there, just not being able to say anything. And I'm thinking, these people must think I'm an idiot. But I just couldn't, at that stage, I just couldn't do it to the level that I wanted to do it at. But what I'd done was get it filmed, I'd reviewed it, so I'd reviewed my delivery, I got people to sit in and give me feedback around my delivery, use some different techniques, so use pauses, try not to move around the room too much, like, it's just, just little bits of detail that they give me that I then take to, you know, to, to further down the line, and then I feel my delivery and presentations is a lot better. Still not perfect, but it's a lot better. Sounds like a lot of what you've done is, you know, a lot of self-reflection, a lot of feedback from other people to then be able to progress. Is similar to a coaching context. Kid or the player does something, you prompt them with an idea or a little bit of feedback, and then they try and go and do it again. Yeah, I don't think it's. I don't think it's dissimilar the sort of process that we put the kids through at all. I think. It needs to be the same because at the end of the day, we ask a lot of our players in terms of trying to stretch themselves and challenge themselves. So we should be a reflection of that. And there's so many times where you put yourself in that awkward situation or that situation where you're thinking, this ain't going right. This isn't, you know, this isn't what I intended. But eventually, if you come out of it with an open mind and the ability to reflect or the want to reflect, I think that you will improve. The issue comes when you come out of that situation and you say, well, this person wasn't good, that wasn't good, this setup wasn't good, and you start making all these excuses that then just put that sort of wall up in front of you actually improving and developing. And that's going to happen along the way, but it's just recognising when, you do, when you're doing that, you actually come on, oh, there was stuff you could have done to improve. It wasn't that, you know, it wasn't that bloke's fault. We just kept bombarding you with these stupid questions. <laughs> yeah, that weren't, weren't even relevant to the CPD that you were delivering. So, um, 
that would be my advice, just to, to keep reflecting on it, keep trying to improve and get that feedback whichever way you need to. And then you mentioned earlier very personable and can strike up relationships well. So when you've moved down to Southampton, obviously you've got on this process of being more self-aware and self-critical yeah. and analysing. Who did you reach out to a lot? Who Whose opinions did you manage to think, either on a off-the-field setting, so it might be for presentations or the psychology type stuff you spoke about there, or on on-field sessions? Where did you go and gain information to upskill yourself? Um, I think, firstly, just working with some of the different coaches at the club in terms of the actual delivery on the pitch, you know, that's, that's definitely helped because within my first year, I worked across a, different, a range of different age groups, not just predominantly with the nines, <clears throat> which was good. You know, working with some some coaches that have been there and done it, and, and brought some great players through through the club, like Tony Santino, really helped just to sort of bed me in, if you like. Um, but I've always had some real good sort of communication, and some I would say it's more like a mentor. He's been more of a mentor to me from from Matt. You know, so I was able to knock on his door and say that this this has happened. What do you think of this? Or you know, I, I want this to improve in our phase. What do you think of this? And, you know, Lee has, Lee has always been there to, to Lee Smith, who's the lead lead phase within the club, has always been there to go, this is my session, Lee, what do you think of it? And then Lee will just tear it apart and he'll say, so, you know, what's the outcome on this? So if you're putting this move in, is it relevant to the area of the pitch, for example? And you know what? What are your intended outcomes? And he's very, very like methodical. Whereas I'm a little bit more ideas, and I just like to go bang, done. But what I've done now is take a little bit more of his sort of way, and put them into my way, if you like. So it's just about trying to learn off everyone around you. I think in terms of actually moving down, I have to. It's probably the support that I've been given is probably more so from my sort of friends and family. You know, having a close group of friends that will come down to Southampton and actually see me and my family coming down to see me and stuff like that and getting home as much as I can because I do miss being home. I'm, you know, Bristol born and bred and, and I'm, I'm proud of it and I, I will, you know, miss home and that's going to happen. So that was difficult, but you have to sort of make these sacrifices sometimes if you want to get where you want to go to in, in your sort of career. Uh, one thing that um, you'll be able to get is exposure, I guess, to other clubs yeah. um, as part of the, you know, the, the academy programme, academy fixtures and all that type of stuff. Are there any particular clubs you, you're particularly impressed with kind of going there in terms of the things that they do that maybe ideas you've been able to steal or conversations you've had with people and going, oh, actually, that's a really good way of coaching now. I'm going to use that. Yeah, I have been really lucky to, to go to various places, um, whether it's on tour or actual sort of um, study visits. So I've been lucky enough to go to PSG, to Clairefontaine, you know, the, the famed with, you know, developing players like Mbappe and, Lots of like Thierry Henry and lots of other players, um, Feyenoord, and I had a study visit for nearly a whole week at Athletic Bilbao. So, 
in terms of that, there's been a real sort of rich experiences for me, you know, in terms of taking these different cultures and these different ways of, of coaching, if you like, or developing players. So if we talk, yes, if we talk through those, so if you look yeah. at someone like Claire Fontaine or, or PSG, what particular takeaways did you have from those type of visits? First of all, I think if, if I just have, like, all of it is just football. Yeah, no one's doing anything that mind-blowing from what I've seen. Everyone has different tweaks and different ways of doing it, but no one's reinventing the wheel. <laughs> I think that's really important to say. Um, so like Claire Fontaine, I thought actually, in terms of the, the setup, their, their, um, their program was based more, their sort of ethos was more around sort of being a family and, and a school. So sort of football seemed a little bit on the back burner, if you like. I'd say the delivery was, was pretty standard. You see patterns of play, you'd see sort of attack versus defense and sort of scenario-based games. But like in terms of the sort of coach to player ratios and stuff like that, it was, I felt it was, you know, in England, we always have sort of like one to 10 or one to eight, but they were working at like one to 20 or one to 23 or whatever it was, or 26. And there was coaches around there, but not coaches involved with the session. So like, for me, I felt that it was a little bit behind in terms of what England is, in terms of the tri- I, uh, E-triple-B. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say I've seen anything from Claire Fontaine where I went, wow, other than the ability to get players from a very rich region of, of players within France. So I think it was something like 72% of professional footballers within France actually came from the Paris region or something like very close to that or 61 or something like that so don't quote me on that but a very high percentage of professional footballers came from Paris region in France so they had the pick of the bunch every time and going to Clairefontaine was seen for many years and I think still is was seen as like the creme de la creme you know the best go there and then PSG come and take take your best players or whoever comes and takes the best players from there. So in terms of the delivery, I don't think I learned that much, but I did learn more about sort of the culture. So they put a bit bigger emphasis on the family. So the boys didn't play on the weekend for Clairefontaine. They went home to be with their families on the weekend and they'd even play in grassroots still. So they sort of they train at Clairefontaine and play at, say, FC Paris. Well, it's not FC Paris because they're professional, but, you know, someone yeah. like that. In terms of PSG, I was actually really surprised by the lack of intensity within their sessions. So they had a real issue. They were saying that they had a lot of players that were very demotivated, but they were giving players, like, five-year contracts at, like, 14. So or whatever it was, it's something like 14, 15, and, and you're thinking, well, where is the motivation? Where is the sort of want to go and, and kick on and drive and, and try and reach your goals when you're already getting those, those sort of contracts or that safety net? And I don't know, like, money-wise, what, what they were, but everyone knows if you probably, being a footballer, if you get that big, long contract, 
you're probably going to feel a little bit more comfortable in that environment. So we, we had a sit down with the coaches there and they were they were saying there was a sort of lack of competitiveness from their players, a lack of sort of great determination from their players. And they were saying England has so many players like that, so what do you do? And for me, I just feel that probably maybe they, they, they weren't that comfortable in probably taking their players where they needed to go in terms of that competition. So like a simple thing like Wednesday's on, maybe it's a bit of maybe it's lost in translation a bit, but we were saying we were like bouncing ideas around the table and just like Wednesday's on and a little four v four, and they were like, "What do you mean? Wow! Like that's like the sort of thing we'll be doing with our kids from like day dot." But that's what they that's what kids would do in the um, schoolyard as well. Wembley, yeah. you score, you're yeah. through. If you're not, yeah. if you end up losing, you sit out. And that's yeah. a, a game that kids set up themselves. But like in terms of the technical ability of the players, they, they look good. They look similar to, to what we have over here. But I just say they were lacking a little bit of intensity. But I think with PSG, they're a new club, really, aren't they? We're well, not a new club, but a, a, a club that's got a lot of power recently. <laughs> yeah. And not a club that's probably famed for producing players. I think they had one first-team player that came through their academy that was I think it was Adrian Rabiot who'd, who'd been playing in their first team at the time. So in terms of actually getting boys into their first team, not actually that successful. There's quite a lot of their players in. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's just really interesting to see how such a big club or see big club, you know, is probably quite far behind in terms of their youth development. And then what about Bill Bow? You mentioned Bill Bow. What was it like going out there? So yeah, Bill Bow was. I felt it was really interested in terms of their sort of culture. Again, one of their strengths is the amount of players that they're picking from. The poor players are huge. They sort of pick from the whole Basque region. And obviously only having Basque players in your first team probably does hinder them. But in terms of recruiting young players, it's a great tool. They have a lot of partner clubs as well. So the other clubs will sort of all feed into Bilbao because that's the main Basque club. And they only have to compete, I think, with um, teams like uh, Alaves, I think it is, and uh, I can't remember the other, but um, a few others in the Basque region. So in terms of you know getting the, the best players, they haven't got that much competition. But in terms of the actual club, I think they have a real sort of clear culture that, again, is, is based around sort of being Basque and being in that family of being really proud to be from the Basque region, and that was a sort of that was a common theme throughout the club. And it was also quite interesting to say that they don't play like the rest of Spain. They were quite proud of it. They said we play like the English way more. We like play like quick transitions and turning the defence into attack quickly. And um, that was quite interesting to me because I thought they would still have more of a a Spanish base, if you like. You know, that, that slow build-up play and that real control possession. Whereas they, they liked it a little bit more, like, like Klopp said, around like rock and roll football. Wasn't it? Or heavy metal. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Something yeah. like that. So, and, and that's what they were sort of saying. Um, in terms of their sort of individual player development, what I did like was that they had a, a number of coaches, I think one or two coaches that were, it was slightly older, but they were, just tasked with developing individuals 
So, like, you'd go and work with a striker, just a striker coach. And, he'd, and a lot of these, these coaches were ex-players as well, so their sort of level of technical detail was really quite high, which I felt was really good and really beneficial for those players, probably trying to get, you know, make those minor tweaks to their game. Because these these coaches have been there and done that. And I'm not saying coaches that have played are better than coaches that haven't. Because, you know, I've not played at a high level and lots of great coaches haven't played at a high level. I think that expertise to be around that as a young player, I think that will really benefit your game. And as a coach, you know, if you can get around that as well and see that and pick up those little bits, then that's going to improve you loads as well. Uh, yeah, I'm with you on that. I don't think all great players become great coaches. Great coaches. I think those that do make a real emphasis to go through that journey of learning how to coach. Yeah. Um, I know someone that worked with a couple of times, but not a lot, but really stood out with that. It's Andy Tilson. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's a former player. Played however many odd league games. Has great knowledge, but has also spent uh, you know a period of time really developing and honing his coaching skills. So you you now go and watch one of his sessions. Unless someone told you, you wouldn't know that he hasn't been doing that for for 30, 40 years in terms of his coaching. But he, um, the level of detail and stuff he's able to go into is is really key. Yeah, definitely. And I, you know, and you can pick that up as a as a coach that hasn't played, just being around those people. But I think the key to that is understanding why. So don't just go, oh, right, in this situation you need to defend off your front foot. Ask, ask Andy why, ask Tilly why, you know, ask Lou, ask Lou why. So asking these people and finding out the context behind that decision or why you should do that is probably just as important as picking up that bit of information. What's interesting as well, I've spoken to Lou a little bit about this, is um, sometimes, it's, well, not sometimes, it's fine to disagree as well. We've had yeah. situations where we're talking about uh, blocking crosses um, and what foot you should go with if you're trying to block a cross. Yeah. And there's still debate at the moment. Some people say go with your inside inside leg so you can yeah. then change direction to go back the other way if they chop. Um, and other people will say go with your closest one because you can close the distance a little bit easier. And when you speak to Lou or whoever, top players and top coaches have different opinions on how they think it should yeah. be done. Um, and I, I had a discussion with Lou and someone else and I, I disagreed with one of them and said and it was a real good discussion point going through the finer details of why we think each technique was better and it just yeah. informed your understanding and I think also on that there's going to be players that do things slightly different anyway so they might do something very 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 different but it actually works for them you know, like I was talking about Wan Saka's tackling, he's quite aggressive and dives in and he has given the ball away a lot after actually regaining possession. But in terms of textbook, you probably wouldn't say that his, his defender is always that textbook, but it works for him and he's one of the most successful tacklers in the Premier League. So sometimes you have to flex and adapt what you sort of perceive as best practice in order to get the best out of the player and his attributes. Because I feel that like football is much more than just a technical and tactical game. Like the mental aspect of football is, I think, it's more 
if you like, it, it takes even more of a precedence over some of those technical and tactical elements. Is there any other clubs that you've been to that particularly stand out or any other um, people you've come across? I think um, for me, like, and I've only seen I've only seen them in tournaments. I've seen a little bit more of Firenwood, but Ajax in tournaments are mind-blowing. For me, they're the best. I don't see many teams that get, get near them. And I'm not saying they're always successful, but in terms of like the players' ability to do things on the ball and ability to find space and sort of understand it, I think is, is some of the best that I've seen within the foundation phase. Um, I think going to a lot of the tournaments, you do see some great individual players. And a lot of those players are English. Really, I think it, everyone should be really proud of that because we are producing some of the best players in the world at the minute, I think, from seeing what I've seen. And I've only seen a small little snippet, you know, so might be completely wrong, but that's my opinion. Um, but, like, the Dutch clubs do like the way that a lot of the top Dutch clubs tend to play and try and develop their players. I think Feyenoord are really good at developing their players and... And also not sort of pigeonholing them too early into positions. They play a number of positions and don't really even, I'm not sure if it's developed now, but a few years back, they weren't really even playing in positions. They sort of just go out on the pitch and they'd find space. And that doesn't necessarily um, get them results. But what it does do, I think, is develop that player's understanding a lot better as they get older. And I'm not saying, like, don't pigeonhole your player. If, if they're is a player that is fantastic at goal scoring. He still needs exposure to that, but like he may need to experience different positions as well. To try and develop different skills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what I think. Previously, you'd mentioned that kind of one of your roles is to look at the IDPs with players and trying to develop um, those type of areas for them. What type of things do you put in place to? aid and I guess motivate them to go and work on those areas to become either super strengths or to develop areas maybe they're struggling in slightly? Well I think firstly this year I'm going to try and develop this a lot more. I don't think last year I, I, I developed it as much as I could have. Um, but in terms of what we already do, we have, we have player reviews. So four times a year within the foundation phase I'll have a player review. Um, from that, they'll get set different targets, well, one target, and then we'll break that down. But going alongside that target, they also have a plan of what they're working on. So, you know, is there, it, in regards to a target, can they work on it within training? Can they work on it within games? So for me, what we've tried to do, especially with the nines, is give them something that's measurable within games. So for example, if you're working on your passing range right here, it might be today, right here. Think about a, a challenge within this game that's gonna allow you to work on your passing range. So you might go, right, I'm gonna try and switch players five times today. And then you come off the pitch and you go, I've only switched it once. Well I tried it five and actually I was five out of five. So if if if, if you're one, maybe if you're one out of five, maybe you need a little bit more work on it or maybe if you're five out of five, we need to look at probably setting you a new target, you know. But if you can do that consistently, but I think 
that's key, firstly, to have measurable sort of challenges and targets. Uh, what we've also done is we've used the Hive platform. So it's like, a, if you like, it's a, like a little video sharing and a comment. It's like a mini Facebook for, for the boys, really. And within that, they have an individual player development page and they have a team page as well. So within their individual pages, they're able to upload an evidence uh, stuff that they've been working on. Also use clips to show sort of how they've improved, um, do interviews to say, this is what I'm working on and this is how I'm going to get there. And we've also put individual sessions on that they could go and work on away from the club. So that's sort of what it looks like at the minute. But next year, probably going to try and develop that even, even more. And in terms of their their ownership for those types of targets, how much of a say do they get in what the targets look like, or how self reflective or self aware are they in that process? We try and give them complete ownership. The only time we might steer them is if they're the complete opposite. So if they're saying I'm fantastic at defending, but they're clearly not. That's the only time we might try and steer them a little bit. I think as they go up through the phase and they go into probably 11, 12, and then into the YDP, it probably becomes a little bit more from the coach. But it's important that the player buys in to you know whatever they whatever it is they're working on. And if if it's constantly the coach saying you need to get better at this, it may not have that same sort of impact. But again, right, it's about knowing your player and understanding your player. You might have a player that comes to you and says, actually, I want you to tell me what I need to work on. And that's okay. You can do that, but still you need to try and explore him making that decision or, or getting him involved in that decision. But there's, there's going to be different players along the way that you know, want more support and maybe some that bang on and they know exactly what they want to work on. Actually, they've gone to a different, even a deeper level than you've not even thought about. So I can remember doing a, a review with one of my players in, in the first year of being full-time in Southampton. And I was talking to him about working on his passing. And he was like, no, no, I don't want to work on that. He's like, I want to work on the timing of my runs, linking from midfield into into attack. So like, my deep runs into the box and and sort of like my third man runs and I was like, well, like this this boy's on a on a different level. And so in that in that case, especially just let him, let him take it, let him own it. You need to just sort of support, facilitate, and question. And I think something that from speaking to Ty, I haven't seen his first hand, but you've been quite creative in in the ways you help him to do that. I mean, he mentioned something to do with the FIFA cards. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the FIFA cards are like, if you like, a little bit gimmicky, <laughs> right? But for the boys, they love it. They love FIFA, and I like playing FIFA as well. So maybe I'm a little bit biased. I'm pretty good on it. And um, so what we've done, we've got all their pictures and put them onto FIFA cards, and then what we do is put their target underneath then their picture and their name, and then on the back of that, it would have. So their match day target, and they just then we just give them a little buy a little uh, drive away, and they'd write their target on the back of the game, uh, on the back of the card before the game. But this then what we done we we give them bronze, so that's their first target if you like. So at the start of the season you set a target, 
everyone gets a bronze. If you've made enough improvement, you then get your silver, then you get your gold, and then obviously you could get a platinum. So the most you could get was platinum as the season went on. And no one even got, I think the majority of the group was still on bronze and, and silver. But I don't mean they didn't develop, they definitely developed. But it was really quite hard to move up through that. And as well as that, I, I'd set sort of different challenges throughout the season to get these special inform cards. So these cards, what I'd do is, is we'd print them out, we'd laminate them, they can go on their little lanyard because you have to carry this lanyard around all the time with their PRS cards on, which means they're registered footballers at Southampton and in the Premier League or the Triple P or whatever it is. So they look like plonkers with these lanyards anyway. So I thought, well, you might as well stick some uh, FIFA cards on there and they like collecting them. So they were going through the season going, oh, I want to get my 500 keepy up card. I want to do this, I want to do that. And then by the end of the season, you've got boys going, oh, you've, you've not given me my, you know, you're not giving me that card. I'm, I'm, uh, I've done the SSC challenge. I've done the Batman barrel roll challenge or whatever it was. I need my informed card. I thought, oh, God, all right, I'll make that card for you. And, you know, they were buzzing. They were loving it. So I'd give them a big card, which was like, I don't know, 30 centimetres long. They could put that up on their wall at home or wherever they wanted. And they had a little one that goes on their lanyard. And then, you know, at the end of the season, obviously we didn't get to the end of the season. But at the end of the season, we were going to check in. And... Yeah, so it just it just helped motivate them. That's what we felt. Um, I think it did, and, and they enjoy it, you know, everyone wants to be on FIFA as a kid, so, uh, yeah, they, I think they love the concept. It's quite a fun way of getting them to engage in that practice as well, and doing a way that they, like, almost speak in their language to a degree. Yeah, definitely, and, you know, if you can get on their level and engage with them on something that they that they do and they, they want to be involved in, then you're probably going to get some better outcomes from it. And you mentioned briefly there about kind of strength and conditioning or, you know, trying to incorporate that. I guess moving through the pathway, how much uh, emphasis is being placed on strength and conditioning and the opportunity to play different sports and develop that? Because obviously we know at the top level, although the same amount of distances are being covered as like 20 years ago, it's the intensity which is changing the ability to do it quick and recover, do it quick and recover. I think there's a massive amount of emphasis being placed on it. You know, our boys will do an hour and a half of multi-sport every every week. So an hour block and a 30-minute block. And we do try and encourage them to do lots and lots out of school, um, in school, sorry, out of, out of Southampton. So if they have a school rugby match, then, you know, that does take precedence over them training. If they have a school athletics you know, it does. We, we try and cater for that player to make sure that they're getting that experience as well. And some of our players we will highlight within reviews to say, you know, we want you to try and take up another sport. So it may be 1v1 defending, for example, as a player's objective and, and target. So it may be that we want to work on some quicker foot patterns with that player. So we'll ask him to go and play tennis or just something that, like badminton, something that that requires real quick explosive movement. So he might be getting turned all the time, you know? So that's going to allow him to move laterally a little bit quicker and move across the ground a little bit quicker. So I think there's there's a big emphasis on, on strength and conditioning 
especially as you go a little bit further up the pit, uh, up the pyramid, where they're starting to then get those more sort of tailored individual sort of schedules. In our phase, it's much more sort of multi-sport based. Moving forward, um, what I guess what are your plans? Are you just to keep working in it with this age group and keep trying to develop players as best you can? Would you like to go and try and work with some of the older boys or what does that look like for you? I know we're, we're particularly fortunate in Southampton is a very good club. So you yeah. want to stay there as long as possible. Would you like to move up or? I think within my role, I do get exposure to working with older boys. So for example, last season, you know, I was just part of um, like a 23 session and it happened to be like a session with some of the first team that got like banished. From, uh, from the first team setup, you know, so there's opportunities to work across different ages. It's just taking those opportunities. I took the 16s to United last season, overnight stay, and, and played up there at Carrington. Um, and I do, I do enjoy it, and it's probably something that you know, further down the line, I'm probably going to look to try and explore a little bit more. Um, but I'm really just keen on on developing players whichever age and that's that's really the main thing for me I think with under nines you see the development and you see it really quickly probably the older you go the probably less so in terms of that development that you see so it's really rewarding coaching under nines it could be really difficult and a bit of a headache you know because they, they don't really look after themselves yet they don't really manage themselves but that's all part of the process because by the end of the season you know, the groups normally can manage themselves a lot better. They not, normally can warm themselves up or meet me on the pitch or actually take some responsibility. But at the start, it's absolute chaos. And I guess last question is something I ask everyone. Um, and you can go for both of this. Who's the best player you've played with or against? And then who's the best coach that you've worked with or against? And I guess the, the important part to that is why? Why are they the top one? Um, it's difficult. Player-wise, I wouldn't say I've played with many great players. Um, <clears throat> if you exclude... <laughs> if you exclude charity games and stuff like that. Charity games have probably played with some better players. Well, I definitely have. Um, I played... One of my youth teams, I was, I was with Bristol Rovers for a little bit when I was younger. Um, and Ollie Clark was our captain. He's, he's playing the first team now. He's Bristol Rovers captain now. He's probably one of the more, more complete players. When I was um, at, when I was travelling in Bristol City, <clears throat> there were a number of good players there. But none, I wouldn't say that none really had the career that you, you'd expect. Um given their talent but Bobby Reed was pretty good but um, my my dealings with him was like over a few sessions like that. and he, he would play up an age or across a few ages so I'd only sort of see him like from across the pitch ships in the night I can't even I can't even claim to train with him really actually so I just placed it with uh, Ollie Clark and then what about then, coaching <laughs> I I, it's difficult because in terms of coaching, I think I was lucky enough to be coached by a man called Dave Burnside, who was like a former England under-17s coach. Um, 
very, very experienced Formula Academy manager at Bristol City. Um, so he'd done a little bit of coaching with us, but it wasn't that long. But you could tell that he had a lot of lot of experience and he was quite outspoken, a man that I think everyone really quite respected. I think in terms of me being coached, I'd say Matt Hell was probably my best coach. Well, he definitely was my best coach. In terms of coaching alongside, there's a number of people that have really sort of shaped and, and helped me develop. I think I think Brad Andrews is, is one of the best that I've worked alongside in terms of his care and his real dedication to to improving players. I think um, in terms of detail and understanding, I think Lou Lou Carey is and his care for the players again is like second to none. I think Lou could really do whatever he wants to do in coaching. So um, obviously he's a great player and also one of my favourite players. <laughs> yeah, I'm a City fan, but um, a great coach and a great, a great person. But I think we're surrounded by great people, and, and I think I could easily name a lot, lots of other people that you know we work with at Southampton that I. That I consider very good coaches and very good practitioners well, oh, I appreciate giving a bit of time up on your Friday morning and um, fingers crossed we'll be able to get out of this and get on the grass soon and I'll catch you there yeah hopefully mate we'll, we'll get through it soon won't we it'll all be back to normal hopefully we'll be back on the pitch soon um, shouldn't be too long but uh, take care and I hope you hope you keep safe yeah and you mate I'll speak to you soon Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.